I was looking out and I thought I would see more green today. Uh, somebody, I knew there'd be somebody. There you go. Right. I mean, that's like, surely today there's going to be a bunch of people in green. So, um, uh, also I was going to comment, I'm, I'm going to just imagine we've got a few more people online than we have the last few weeks um, today with uh, people have PTSD from snowpocalypse last year. And so it got cold and there was a little bit of precipitation. So everybody has to stack firewood this morning. So um, I figured there would be a little bit of that going on as well. <coughs> um, so here we are, uh, and it's January, and this is the natural season, and every year um, we try to follow certain seasons uh, within the church and this church, and, and it's a natural season to talk about new things um, while not forgetting old things, and, and, uh, and that's kind of what January is, is a good time for, and we typically do that. We talk about what the church is. Um, identity is really important to the gospel. Um, the message of, of who we are in Christ is the core of the gospel. It's, it's not a series of, uh, of rules or, or whatever, or hoops to jump through, but um, really fundamentally it's about identity. And so we're going to come back to that a lot today. Who we are, what is the church, what is this church, and over the next few weeks, talking about some of these things. Um, so we always start with identity, understanding what it is to accept the identity bestowed on us by Him, and then to learn to live that out in grace. So we're always going to be starting with identity. Uh, in January, we, when we talk about the, the, the identity of the church in 2017, um, we, in January we worked through our mission statement, um, which is that we live, teach, and tell the gospel that all may experience the living God. Um, obviously, it's just a, a paraphrase of the, um, the Great Commission, as every church mission statement ought to be, essentially is is either just a direct quotation or a paraphrase of Jesus' Great Commission. Um, anything else would just be flat error, um, I think. So um, in 2019, I couldn't find in my notes 2018. Uh, I didn't have a long time to look for it, so, and I knew it wasn't that big a deal, but we did something in 2018. In 2019, um, we looked at the core of our identity, and this one was the most important one to me um, in understanding even my theology of the church. Um, and it really came down to a three-word uh, sentence that this is what it means to be the, capital T, capital C, the church. And that is, we are His. So we unpacked that in 2019. You can go back and check that out. In 2020, we focused on the attention to the challenges to community. How fascinating that in January in 2020, we were talking about, what are the challenges to community? Um, failure, mental illness, church conflict, and forgiveness is what we dove into back then. Last year, 2021, we focused on the phrase from 2 Corinthians 4, quote, so we do not lose heart. I can't imagine what we were thinking, you know, what was on our brains at the time, thinking why we felt like at the end of 2020, 2020 we needed to use the phrase, don't lose heart, but uh, um, that's not true. I know exactly what we did. We can't, so this year's theme, this year's theme, 2021's theme, as we've been teaching through 1 Peter, has been one of preparation and then transitioning even into waiting and, and you may not know, but especially in the student ministry and in others, one of our other main themes was the theme of wilderness um, that came up several times, and even during the teaching on Peter as well, from Peter as well, this idea of wilderness. What it's, what's it like to live in wilderness? What's it like to experience that? And because it's an important part of the uh, stories of many of the people in the Bible. Now, I think these are significant. We also don't want to fall into the habit of overestimating these. 
Um, we don't want to fall into the habit of overestimating the persecution of the church in America. That, that's an easy thing that we could do as well. And so to recognize um, that in the church in America, um, we still have it really well. Uh, we're all very well fed. It's plenty warm in here. Um, we're, we are still have the freedoms protected to gather and to worship and to believe as we see fit. Um, and so that's one side of things, and, and I don't want us to, to come across as, as even more, um, I don't know, kind of weeny than we actually are, which is bad enough, but, but I mean, somebody being mean to us online isn't exactly like being arrested and put in a re-education camp and starving to death, right? That's, and there are Christians facing that around the world right now, and, and so we don't want to overestimate that. Also don't want to under-prepare for that as we recognize there are starting to be, for many people, financial pressures, for example, when it comes to taking a stance on, on biblical truth and biblical concepts. Certainly there is social pressure. Uh, pretty much everyone is already starting to face that social pressure. And just to recognize that we've had it good for a long time as Christians, that, that the natural path of things was the Christian path. And maybe there's still some of that here in Tyler, Texas, but that's even here it's changing where the natural downhill path was being a Christian and following the Christian path and recognizing there's being a change in the topography in America now where the, the path to be a Christian is going to be the uphill path. To take a stance on Christian values is going to be an uphill path. Well, we shouldn't be afraid of that. That's the nature, that's the, the nature of humanity is to go there. It's just amazing it took this long. Um, and really, we've gone through phases of this even in America, if you study history, where we've been here before. And and either there's a great awakening and that kind of rescues us and changes the topography back, or there won't be, and eventually there won't be. This may be the time that there isn't, in which case we'd better, we'd better get in some shape, grow some legs and get some lungs and learn to walk the uphill path and learn what it is to, to feel the sense of rejection and, and the lack of social capital that, it, that we've had as Christians for most of my lifetime, where being a Christian was an advantage in every, in every area um, and now that's going to become a disadvantage, and, and not being afraid of that. Again, Christians around the world have faced that. Um, the African-American church faced that for a lot of its history here in the United States, that, that this is something that, that, we've, that we've learned, we're learning how to deal with the, the first steps of some of these things. So both are true. <laughs> in fact, James 5, doing a Bible study um, last night with some guys uh, at Ken Hodge House, and we were I'm looking at James 5 and wrapping up the book of James. It's interesting, the last phrase, the last sentences in the book of James say this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's, that's not on the screen because it got added in last night, really late. And so, um, uh, but that phrase, it's intriguing to me that once again James has targeted as if he wrote this year. The idea that what we're facing among Christians right now is that as the tendency among Christians to, quote, wander from the truth. And that's what we're seeing people do. They're wandering from the truth. There's a, there are truths that we know scripturally, and people are, they're just kind of drifting. And be, like sheep, they drift down the easiest path. They drift down the, the path that's the easiest one, the downhill one. And so now people are wandering away from the truth because the truth is uphill. And, and, and it's interesting because we read that, and Ken asked the group of us, um, are these people who wander away from the truth, are they lost or saved? And my son, Holland, who's kind of gifted at this stuff and seeing this stuff, said, 
it seems to me like we just need to focus on the fact that they're wandering away from the truth. Like it's, whether they're saved or not saved isn't the question in this passage. The question is, they're wandering away from the truth. And how do we re-engage with them and, and help them to re-engage and re-figure out and re-believe or whatever it is, the truth? So we also spend time talking about who we are as a local church and, who, and what South Spring is. Um, we talk about what's going on and we celebrate the things the Lord has done and maybe some things that are coming. And we talk about where we need to go and how to shore up some things. In fact, next week, it's my plan to, to have some microphones in the room to hear from, from us, the whole church. What is it about this community that we need to be protecting? What is it, what is it that we love about one another? And what is it that's, that, that makes this place where we have chosen to have to try to live out church as a verb here? And so you can be even thinking about that as we discuss that. And by definition, these January sermons are the worst organized of my sermons. And, and that's saying something, obviously, with my sermons. And so I'm um, just, just warning you in advance that that's the case, because I don't have a just one passage to just teach through, which is what I love to do and much prefer to do. But, but to be able to have these conversations, I think, is valuable. Jesus taught topically, so it's not wrong to do so. Um, uh, and so next week, as we go through this in the 30th, and as you saw on the, on the 23rd, we have um, uh, a devoted Sunday. And Lord willing, on the 16th, Jim Dennison is going to be here. Um, he has actually just written a book um, about some of the things I was talking about, the changes in the culture, and he wants to come share with us some of what he's realized with this. So that'll be, hopefully that'll be really cool. And, and that'll actually be our church's fifth anniversary as well. And so we can celebrate that with him um, all right, so let's look at this. What is church? Um, now, this book, uh, Sinclair Ferguson's book, Devoted to God's Church, I've been reading it the last couple of weeks, and, and this has, has influenced my thinking enough that it deserved more than just kind of a casual mention. Um, it's influenced me and inspired me uh, enough with this that if anyone had happened to read it, they would be like, I feel like I've read that some of the stuff that he's saying before. I'm just stealing it from Sinclair Ferguson. Um, and so there's some great stuff here. I, I recommend the book if you're someone who wants to understand more and more about what it means to be a part of his church um, as well. So I just want to comment on that and give him credit, and I'll, I'll reference him a few more times throughout this, but, and so I thought I should mention it. And we, the issue is, part of the issue is, we use the church, the word church, for so many different things, and so it, makes a, it creates a lack of clarity for us. How did something we call the church go from being one guy with 12 friends to then adding a few dozen more to then having gatherings of a few thousand more to now one in every three people in the world claiming to be a Christian. Now, I'm, I'm sure not all of them are, but one in every three claim to be around the world. That's an amazing thing. And, and the church as a whole around the world is growing, not shrinking. Um, in America, the evangelical church, which we're a part of, is pretty much staying. We're growing, which we're growing at about the same rate as the American population. So the evangelical church is staying pretty stable the last few, last few years um, with the population growth. Uh, most other church denominations, in fact, all other church denominations are shrinking in America, numerically. Um, and so there are some big changes that are happening here. There seems to be a, a division. That's a big shock, right? In America, there's a, there's a division right now. Some of you, um, if you don't know that, you've not been paying much attention. That's, that's part of what's going on here. How did this happen? What is the connection to this happening? And how do we spread out so quickly? How do we even survive? It's weird to consider that the early church was considered, was looked at um, negatively by the Romans, which was the dominant culture, and the Jews at the time, the non-Christian Jews, which was the dominant subculture um, going on, and one of the dominant subcultures, 
the early Christians were seen as criminals at best, um, atheists, rebels, um, and even cannibals. Um, Christians were executed for laws like breaking, like atheism was, uh, was one of the reasons Christians were arrested by the Romans. And you're like, that seems weird, atheists. Like, well, we only have one God and he's invisible. And to the Romans, that didn't count. And so you were an atheist. Um, and, and, uh, and often the idea of us being cannibals because we eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. And so obviously that's a pretty significant misunderstanding, but no one was seeking understanding at the time. They were just looking to arrest people. So, so what, is, what is a church and what does it look like for all these different years? And since identity is such a big deal, I wanted to start this first Sunday this year really digging into this question. Um, so I saw, even saw some commentators online kind of gently railing at the fact that we shouldn't call ourselves church because it's not a Bible word. Um, and man, can Christians get uptight about the weirdest things, huh? Uh, that's like, I'm like, really, this is, this is worth your podcast time, is, is to argue about whether or not we should even call ourselves a church. But here's the point they're making. It's not a Bible term. Um, the, word, the word that even translates, and you're going like, Chris, I'm pretty sure you in the Bible it says the word church. It does, several times. Um, Jesus references, the, uh, the, in your English Bibles, it will say the word church three times. Um, but the Greek word being translated into church is ekklesia. Um, and it just means to gather. Gathering. That's what ekklesia means. And so when Jesus references it, in fact, here's the most important one in my opinion, um, is going to be in Matthew uh, 16, 18. And in Matthew 16, 18, we meet Jesus and his disciples. They've gone to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a center of pagan worship. I think we have a picture, an artist's rendering of what Caesarea Philippi probably would have looked like then. Um, except that it probably doesn't show the proper crowds. There probably have been lots more people than that. Um, and so there's these various little nooks in the, in the wall at Caesarea Philippi, and they, had, they knew there were temple stuff. This was the center of pagan worship, one of the centers of pagan worship in the Decapolis, the ten pagan cities uh, in the region of Israel. And so this is where Jesus brings his disciples, is here to this center of pagan worship. And the word ecclesia was probably being used all around them. You would have the ecclesia for Zeus's temple. You would have the ecclesia for Pan's temple, for example. Those are two temples that were there. And so, and so you would probably have priests, if they were speaking Greek, say, it's time to gather at Zeus's temple. And they would be using that word. Now, translated in the, it's, it's used about Jesus three times uh, in the translation, but, but even that's complicated. I'll get there in a second. Um, if you listen to, uh, and you would know that if you listen to the Reconstructed Faith podcast, because uh, Chris and I talked about the, the, the interesting nature of church as a source of pain and harm for many people, as a source of people to not be, be Christian. Um, and so that's part of what we were defining with this, and we want to define terms, and that's one of them. Um, and so this one usage that Jesus uses is the most defining, and it is, in my opinion, the moment that church history begins. There's a moment the church history begins, and it is right here in Matthew 16, 18. So Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And he, they give him a bunch of answers, and he says, who do you say that I am? And they say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to them is, oh, wow, that's imp- I, good job. That's, that's good. I know you didn't come up with that. The Holy Spirit must have come up with that for you. And, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the word there, Petros, um, is used twice. You are Petros, and on this Petros I will build my church. His proclamation of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
But notice the most important thing is, I will build my church. This is his church. It's his ecclesia. It's his gathering. It's not Zeus's gathering. It's not Pan's gathering. It's my gathering. These are my people who gather. And in that moment, they had the first church service. So what word did Jesus speak? You go, well, ecclesia, right? Probably not. Jesus didn't speak Greek, probably. He probably spoke kind of the Hebrew-Aramaic mixture that the people spoke at that time. And so no one knows for sure what word he actually spoke here. Um, There's a debate on it, but most likely there seems to be some consensus online that it would have been an Aramaic word, ladoth. Now, ladoth, L-A-D-O-T-H, and it's a legal term that means to gather and testify, to gather and bear witness, to gather and receive instruction of the law, to gather and be taught. And there's also a little bit of a wordplay here in that it can also mean the gathering of a bride um, to her wedding. Actually, can mean the word bride is very similar to it in the Aramaic. <laughs> so there you go. That makes sense that Jesus might have used the word that meant my gathering is still a gathering. Same word, same concept, just different language, Aramaic or Greek, my gathering. Okay? But we don't use any one of these words. We use the word church, which doesn't sound anything like ecclesia or ladoth. So where does it come from? Well, as typically is the case, when you do identity work, because I'm betting not a single person in the room knows the answer to that question. I didn't think so. I didn't until this week. And so here's what's wild. So here's, here's where it comes from. This is what is thought, the history of it. And so we dig a little bit and we discover gold once again. The best guess at the etymology of the word church is this. It's rooted in a different Greek word, kairios. Now, some of you know what kairios means. I know. That's Lord. So when you see the word Lord in the Bible, the New Testament, it's Kyrios, Lord. So the word Kyriakon would mean of the Lord. So you can imagine already how this works. You have the word Kyriakon of the Lord and Ecclesia, Ecclesia, Ecclesia Kyriakon would mean the gathering of the Lord. And this is probably what the first century called when they got together, or these two words, were gathering, the gathering of the Lord. Over time, it was apparently shortened to just the Kyriakon, and then eventually it was shortened to Kirk. Okay? Now, any of my, uh, any of my Highland gamers remember what the first event of the Highland games always is? No, it's called the Kirking of the Tartans. In other words, the churching of the families is what it is. It's the, it, they have a religious leader get up and make this, proclaim this certain special blessing over the, the event, and it's called Kirking of the Tartans. Now, it's supposed to be done in Gaelic, and, and I got invited to do it once, and I don't know Gaelic, and so I had to do it in English, and I never got invited back. I think they were really disappointed that, uh, that I couldn't do it in Gaelic. So I've got to work on that. But this is, a, this, this is the idea. The Kirk, that's where the word Kirk turns into church in English. And so, once again, it still makes total sense. Church meaning a, a being a transliteration, a eventual changing into the, from the word of the Lord. And that should not be a surprising to us, that the church is actually the gathering of God's people in His name. In fact, I would argue that when God's people gather in His name, that is church. That is a church meeting. It is a church meeting. Um, when we gather together in His name as Lord, 
I mean, we gather together because He is Lord. We are gathered together, those of us who follow Him as their rabbi, as their master, as their anointed one, as their king, as their savior, as their friend, as their brother, as, his, as their groom, as their Lord, as our Lord. When we gather together in His name, that is church. One of the very first, in fact, I think the very first sermon I ever saw Pike Weisner give um, uh, was, he's the, the pastor at First Baptist downtown, and we were all together. It was actually him giving a children's sermon. Um, and it was just, I was going to preach but for in view of a call, and then he was giving the children's moment that they did. And so he gets up with his children, and he does this little thing. Y'all remember this? It's so cute, isn't it? So he's, he gives it to the kids, and he goes, hey, kids, some of you have seen this before, that you go, that this is the church, and here's the steeple, right? That's your first mistake. This is the church, and here's the steeple. Open it up, and there's the people. Isn't that clever? So he then goes, here's the deal, kids, here's the church. This is the church. This is not the church. That's a building. This is the church. That's great teaching and dead on. That is the truth about who we are. We are the gathering of God's people in His name, and that is the church. And so if we're meeting in a cave in fours and fives, or we're meeting in our homes because we can't get out of our homes, or if we're meeting in our neighborhoods or in our office lunch break room, when His people gather together in His name, that is the church. In fact, here's what's wild. This shouldn't be surprising. Listen to what Jesus says about this in Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So this is what it means to get, when we gather together in his name, we're now meeting with him, with the people who call him rabbi, Lord, teacher, master. That's, that's us, and that is church. And he's there with us. And by the way, don't leave out that middle section. I'm shocked at how often, that because I did it once and then became very hyper aware of the error of it, when I went and looked it up, <clears throat> I, I, and I've seen so many and heard so many pastors and teachers and leaders leave out that middle phrase. They'll just say, well, you know, when two or three of us are gathered, he's there. Well, I mean, okay, he's omnipresent. He's there. Yes, if you're a believer, the Jesus in me interacts with the Jesus in you, as, as Bonhoeffer would say. But that's not the same thing as gathering together intentionally in his name. That's why we pray over meals. That's why we have the tradition of praying over meals with our family, is we're gathering together in this moment in His name. It's why our first song is almost always an invitation to worship Him in His name. That's, this is part of what we're doing. We're gathering together in His name, and He is here with us in, in a special way. This phrase actually occurs, by the way. You wouldn't think where Matthew 18, 20 is. If you know your Bible, you may know. This is actually at the end of the passage on Christian conflict. Isn't it funny, by the way, that Jesus comes to earth and he teaches and he goes, here's how you should love each other. This is it. So you should love each other sacrificially. You should be devoted. You should be patient. You should be meek. You should be humble. Okay, so now when you sin against each other, here's what you need to do. Isn't that funny? It's like he knows us, right? Listen, I'm going to tell you, don't sin against each other. Here's all the ways to not sin against each other. Are we all clear? Good. Okay, so now when you sin against each other, here's what I need you to do. And Matthew 18 is a very clear, it's, it's as clear as Jesus gets behaviorally, very clear behavioral teaching. You do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, and this is the pattern, and this is what I want you to do whenever there's church conflict, whenever there's conflict among Christians, when you sin against each other, this is how I want you to handle it. And fascinatingly, the last phrase in his teaching on how to disagree, how to deal with sinning against each other, 
is this phrase. So in other words, when you sin against me or when I sin against you, and you follow Jesus' teaching, and you come and you say, Chris, you sinned against me. I feel like you sinned against me. And, and I go, man, I, I am so sorry to hear that I sinned against you. Let's pray as we discuss this. As we discuss this, we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is like, yep, that's church. I'm there. So even when Christians sin against each other and disagree and then follow his teaching about how to deal with that, still church, gathering together in his name. So being church is really about nothing more than being a Christian. If you are a Christ follower, you are a member of his church. To deny that would be to deny your identity as being part of the gathering those who are called in the name of the Lord. If you're one of those called in the name of the Lord and you gather, you are church. We are, we, are, we are representatives of the church everywhere we go. And I've found over the years I'm becoming less and less tolerant of people being, <clears throat> I don't want to say this, critical not of a church, not of this church, but of the church. That when people get, get up in arms about that, and I don't remember the first time I did it, and I'm not talking about like, oh, we should have this type of donut, or oh, we should have these kind of notes, or whatever. And that's, that's everybody, that's, that's fine. That's not what I'm talking about. But what you see is sometimes people get really darkly negative about the church, especially in Christian publishing. I started to do that once as a, as a young teacher and taught about some of this, about kind of the failings of the church, just, just a little bit in a sermon. And afterwards, I had an older person come up to me and say, just be careful, you're talking about his bride. It's like, oh, that's a good word. Listen, I just recommend you don't talk negatively about my wife to me. That's probably not going to go well. And we need to be sober and serious about like, no, it's, this is his church. If, if we want to grow within, because we are failures, certainly as individuals, and we come together, we're then a gathering of dysfunctional, failing people. Of course, there's going to be ugliness in the church. But that's not the fault of his concept of the church. That's just us dropping the ball. So we just need to be careful as we engage with this conversation. We're his and that's the key. Now, I want to take a moment of clarity. Being a part of a church doesn't make you a Christian. <clears throat> it doesn't work both directions. Being a Christian makes you part of the church. Being a member of a church does not make you a Christian. Um, a Christian is someone who follows Jesus, one of his disciples. We trust him to save us forever, to try to live out his way. So in becoming a Christian, in essence, we're joining his school. We're joining his pathway. We're accepting adoption into his family. We're becoming one of his people and therefore becoming a member of the church. Samuel Stone, the poet, wrote it this way. This is how significant the church is to Jesus. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. This is a big deal. And of course he's talking about what we would call the invisible church, those real, the actual followers of Jesus Christ, not knowing that of course there's such a thing as the visible church and they are not identical. That's the people who attend gatherings, who claim to be Christian. Um, when Chris and I were doing the, the podcast and talked about the, um, uh, the significance of people being hurt in the church, and this is no excuse but the, the, the honest truth is that if you were hurt in the church in the name of Jesus Christ, there's a decent chance that it was not a Christian. Because just because everybody comes to church doesn't mean they're a Christian. And so that's, that is a part of the reality of it. There's the invisible church, and that is those who only God knows who they are, who have put their faith in Him. And then there is the visible church, which is made up of all of us, 
at the best, are saved people who are jacked up, and at the worst, are lost people who are jacked up. That's, those are the two options. And so recognizing, of course, there's going to be hurt in this, but we're supposed to be learning and growing. In fact, not only can you be a member of the local church and not be a Christian, but according to Matthew 7, 22-23, one of those scary passages that if you stop a little bit too soon... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. <laughs> in fact, as Sinclair Ferguson says, apparently, in fact, he does this uh, in kind of bold print letters spread across the page. Apparently, you can at least claim to do mighty works in his name and not be a Christian. So could you be a church member and not be a Christian? Of course you could. Absolutely, that's the case. In fact, I, I want to give you this encouragement. Um, when we are talking to people, especially in church staff role, we run into this and others, that we're talking to somebody and, and they're, they want to join the church or they're doing premarital counseling or they're doing something else and we ask for their story, kind of their life story, what's going on with them, and they tell their life story and it doesn't involve a conversion. It doesn't involve being lost and then being found. And so we will then ask, like, tell me about your conversion? Like, how'd you become a Christian? And they give answers like, well, I've always been a Christian. Let me just tell you, no, you haven't. You've not always been a Christian. Now, you may mean, as far back as I can remember, I've been a Christian. Well, sure, that's going to be the case. Human memory is pretty flawed that way, right? I mean, you could hit your head and not remember when you became a Christian, or you could have been three when you put your faith in Jesus and not remember becoming a Christian. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you actually believe you've always been a Christian, you're wrong. You have not always been a Christian. You were not born a Christian. That's a, that's a decision to accept the free gift of his adoption. Now, or, or even more interesting, sometimes um, uh, Ferguson talks about what he calls naturalies. Then when you ask them if they're a Christian, they say, well, naturally. Like, listen, there's a lot of ways to become a Christian. Naturally ain't one of them. <laughs> like, you're not going to become a Christian that way. Um, and so, no, you're not naturally a Christian. You're naturally not a Christian. What's changed about that is the actual question that's going on. Or my father paid for the children's building. That's how I'm a Christian. I won't do it. You can't be congregationally a Christian. You can't even be culturally a Christian. I served in all of these ways. I was, I was a deacon chairman for years of my life. I was an, a leadership board member. I was an elder in the church. I served on the stage. I served on the church staff. That's why I'm a Christian. None of those will do it. In fact, I want to, I want to make a comment. <clears throat> um, it, it's an interesting thing to me, and talking about this, some of you, there may be people out there right now who are going, I don't know that I've ever put my faith in Jesus. And every, everybody thinks I have. I've always thought, kind of, kind of think of myself as being that, but you know, I went through some kind of confirmation. I went through some kind of Sunday school class. I went to VBS. I grew up as a uh, you know, I was a member of the of the you know the young fetuses class when I was child, and that was I've always been here, and and so like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and now you're thinking, I don't think I've ever put my faith in Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you with something. I think there's a little fear that that you think if I come forward now, if I come forward now, that everyone's gonna I'm gonna come up and go, I don't, Chris, I don't think I've ever been a Christian. I don't think I've ever put my faith in Jesus. And then we're going to tell everybody, everybody's going to go, boo, you lied to us. You were on the deacon body and you were not a Christian. You lied, boo, throwing things. Um, that's, that's not going to happen. 
Uh, in fact, everybody's going to celebrate with you. We all understand. Like that's, I promise that will not be the response. I have loved seeing since we looked at uh, baptism and we, we analyzed baptism through the Peter, the passage in First Peter. We've had several people come and be baptized who you, everyone was like, oh, I, of course they're baptized, right? I mean, sure, surely they've already, they've done that. They, and, and, and they were wrestling through issues like, well, I was sprinkled as a child. What does that mean? Or I don't, I don't want to, it's embarrassing to me in front of people or whatever it was they're wrestling through. And then they're finally like, you know what? I just need to do this. What am I waiting on? I just need to do it. And I, I mean, some of you are out there. Did anyone do that? Boo, you tricked us. We thought you were baptized already. No, of course not. We all, we all celebrate that. If, if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're on church staff, please come and put your faith in Jesus. I mean, put your faith in Jesus Christ and then come let us know. I mean, you don't need to come do that. Do that wherever. And then we want to hear about it. Like that's, a, that's, that's how that's going to work. <clears throat> do you know that you were lost? And at some point, were you found? Have you accepted the conversion as real? Even if you don't remember the moment, has that something you've said? No, this, this is real. This is legit. I was lost and now I'm found. Anyway, <clears throat> fortunately, Jesus doesn't stop speaking because people make these claims all the time. He doesn't stop speaking. And once again, we stop reading because there's a chapter break or a little paragraph break in our Bible. And so we stop reading, which is often a mistake. The next verse is Jesus unpacking the parable of the um, two buildings or the two foundations. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. See, he goes on, he goes on to unpack this idea that, that there's two guys who build houses. And clearly, when you look at it, apparently building a house is akin to doing many mighty works. Both of them do the mighty works. They both build the houses. Maybe this is similar to the passage in Matthew 25 that people get uptight about. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoners. Both men do the things. They both serve and they both do mighty things in, in the name of Jesus Christ. And they both, they both build houses in the analogy. The problem is one of them built the house on sand. And it doesn't matter how good a house you built, if you build it on sand, it's going to fall down. Whether that's going to happen during this lifetime or in judgment, that's going to happen. This is how this works. Everyone who builds the house, if you build your house on obedience to Jesus Christ, well, those will stand. But if you do these mighty works to build your own sense of merit or your own sense of self-value or that you've earned something, it's not going to happen. And I don't think there has to be a direct correlation between the usage of the word rock here and the rock upon which he will build his church. They're both the same Greek word, Petros. But I don't think there's not, not a correlation either. I think there's a, an important connection. So you want to stand through every storm? Do you want what you build to stand to last? Then you better build your life on His teaching. The mighty works come from knowing Him, not from self-importance. When you build on that foundation, the very same mighty works will stand, and they will stand forever. Build on sand, it's going to go away. He won't know you. So this kind of helps us understand this idea of living out an identity well. Whether we're talking about being a Christian or being a son or a daughter or a wife or a husband, these are all identities that we are given, bestowed upon us um, by someone or something, but there's still the question of whether we're doing a good job of it. Am I being a husband well? Am I doing it well? Am I being a son or a, or a brother or, or, or whatever, a father? Am I doing a good job of those things? Because I have those identities, and now the challenge for us is to learn to live them out. In Luke 14, we get this fascinating, and I think one of those moments where Jesus is being hounded by crowds, 
and everybody thinks they want to follow him. And so he turns, and actually the, the language is, he turns on them and teaches. And I think there's a little bit of he, he turns on them and teaches of what we get in Luke 14, which is tough teaching. In Luke 14, three different times, Jesus creates a, check, a box to check to become his disciple, to be his disciple. If anyone, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Box number one. Box number two, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Box number three, so therefore, verse, verse 33, so therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In the book, Ferguson says, this ought to probably, this, it, it kind of means a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but, but also probably in reality, when people come to join the church, we probably just need to have these three questions. Well, you'd like to join the church? Okay, first, compared to your devotion to Jesus Christ, do you hate everyone else? It's not that we're actually supposed to, I don't think Jesus literally means we're supposed to hate people. That clearly would go against his general teaching. But relative to our devotion to him, it's like we hate everybody else. The chasm is so great, it'd be the difference. Are you willing to sacrifice all of them? Oh, good? Okay. It's question number two. Are you willing to face the kind of death that he faced? Because that's what you're doing when you take up a cross. You're not going to a picnic. You're going to a crucifixion. And you're going to yours if you're the one carrying the cross. Are you willing to take up the cross and follow him? Having a cross to bear is not about your character flaws. You ever heard that? People say that? Well, I just speak the truth. That's just my cross to bear. No, that's everybody else's cross to bear. <laughs> your cross to bear is that you're apparently immature. So this is a... Uh, you learn to speak the truth in love, which is maturity. This is, uh, but it is the question here is about cruise. Are you willing to die? You want to do? Are you willing to die? Then you can be my disciple. And, and number three, have you renounced all that you have? Have you looked at your life, all the good things, all the bad things? You've looked at your life, and you've looked at your checking account, and your savings account, and your retirement account. And you've looked at your vehicles and your houses, and you've looked at your family and your friends, and you looked at everything you've got, and you go all of this on a blank check, with my name signed at the bottom, handed to Jesus, do with it as you will, I renounce it, it's all yours. Because just those three simple things is what it takes to be his disciple. So what about being a member of a church? Since Christ modeled with his students gathering together, his followers have always done so, as we're instructed to in Hebrews 10. I've been kind of the theme verse of 2021. It certainly was of our gather uh, again uh, campaign. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we gather together, except of course the justifiable reasons, the persecution, being in hiding, affliction, war, disease, and then we just gather together however we can as we talked about. And that's the church. We use the word, I'm going to encourage you. I've had a couple of people do this recently, and so I just feel like I need to comment that I've had a couple of people who are members of this church talking about strategy or mindsets or whatever, even appreciation. Hey, I'm, I'm so happy about, about South Spring that does this. And then they will say, you. I'm so happy that South Spring does this. You do a great job with that. And I don't think they mean me as the lead pastor. They mean kind of the leadership or, I don't know, maybe the cool people or something. I don't know what they're talking about. 
But if you're a member of this church, when you say something about South Spring, you then say we. It's not a you thing, it's a we thing. This is vitally important. This is a shepherding mindset. This is a we thing. We make this stuff happen through the power of Christ, not some you, unnamed you out there. So the early church just lets you know, wow. Um, the early church met in several different ways. I want to kind of let you know. My, my wife has said, like, this would be cool to know how the church met. Um, and so the, it met in several ways. And I just want to show you in homes, um, the, the, in, often in homes. The homes are referenced several times in Acts, Philemon, Corinthians, Colossians, Romans, to say uh, a few others. Certainly, some of these would have been a small house, maybe a Jewish insula like this, or a series of little houses with an open court in the middle. Um, a more modest one looked like this. Uh, maybe the more wealthy ones looked more like that. Again, with the opening center, hold up a little bit, the opening in the center with a bunch of little rooms and houses around it. Then if you go to, but many of them would have also moved, met in Roman homes because they were meeting in Roman cities. And the Roman homes could be very opulent. In fact, some of the people that Paul lists were meeting, we met in this person's home or this person's home, we know were wealthy people. Um, and so you might have a home, that now you can do the Roman, the Roman house that had big meeting areas in the center like this, which you can imagine they would want to meet in larger houses. And some of them could be huge. Also, large gathering spaces were used by the first apostles in Acts 19. We find out that the apostle Paul met in um, the, the, the hall of Tyrannus um, when, he became, when, they, when some became stubborn, talking about them in the synagogues, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the other residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek, which is quite a feat, right? So you think, what's the hall of Tyrannus? Well, it's a, it was a large gathering space, and some of your Bibles will even imply there's a contextual note that got moved into the text at some point in some translations um, that references like what time of day that Paul actually was using the hall of Tyrannus. It was during lunchtime, probably when the Greeks weren't in there, the Greeks and Romans weren't in there. So maybe some people think that he literally rented out a convention center every day for two years to teach the gospel in the center, just like us renting out a movie theater or a church or something, or something else to hold church. The hall, of, the hall of Tyrannus looks like this today, but I, when I saw that picture, I was like, well, that's cool because that's the front of it that's left. And I was like, that's kind of cool. But then when I saw a picture that had some context with people in it and realized, oh, that's really big. Like the Hall of Tyrannus was huge. And so Paul was meeting there for a long time. Um, but at least by the early 300s, there seems to have been buildings created purely for the gathering of believers. One of my favorite is called the, the uh, Octagon in Philippi. Um, which is interesting. The, the, it's got a building inside of another building. The Octagon Church is inside of a square house. And there's debate over why this would be, but one of the common thoughts is that it was hiding, is that they literally had a house, they gutted the house and built a church inside of it so that they, couldn't be, they could meet in a church building without being found. So it would be like you know, building a big warehouse over this church or something so we could meet here and no one would know we were here. Um, the, the life, living a life worthy of being a member of the church includes gathering together with other believers, and it always has. Of course, you can worship God alone in the mountains. In fact, I highly recommend it. But that truth is in no way in competition with gathering with other believers to worship. In no way. Of course, you would do both. There's a power in being united in Him. A common saying nowadays is about you know, how we can accomplish more together or whatever. Um, I was looking for motivational um, posters about this. And this is my favorite one, Together We Achieve More, which is, which is apparently 
a weird acronym of the word team. You have to use the E from we rather than the W, obviously. Um, uh, together we achieve more. I don't know what it means that I think the ants are gathering a ball of dung, um, although that would, this probably should be the humanist manifesto right here. It's like, look at all we can accomplish together. Um, we can haul a ball of dung everywhere. Um, but, but see, the, the concept of, of us just doing stuff together is not much better than ants hauling around manure. What we need is someone to lead us into how to live these things out. Real power, even real human power, comes from being in alignment behind a leader. Um, being in alignment behind a rabbi or a, a, a shepherd or a lord, for example. Think about when you think about really humans accomplishing something. I've got a few examples that just jumped to my mind, like people rowing, but they've got to be rowing in the same timing, in the same direction. You've got to have somebody like the girl there doing the shouting or telling them when to go. And then the idea of a sled dog team, when you have like you have the, you, the, the dogs are just going to run and pull unless someone guides them in what direction to do so. Some of my favorite examples, which I, I don't have time to unpack here, but will at the men's event. Like, like the, but notice you have a, a wall of warriors, and yet you still hear, have here on the end the commander telling them, giving them instructions and guidance, and that's needed. Or my favorite example, of course, the phalanx. And you need the guy in the middle there with the, you know, with the crest on his helmet to be leading, and I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the fact that we need a shepherd, we need a rabbi, a leader, a lord, a master who we're looking to and we're trying to follow. I want to show you this because we need to be reminded to work. We need to be reminded to get to work. Our natural tendency sometimes is like sheep. We just get a little bit lazy and, and we need to be reminded to work. Listen to this reminder from Paul in Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only my presence but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you're like me, that verse scares me to death. Let's work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. Hey, you got to get to work. The encouragement is we need to be working. And we need that reminder to get to work. But notice who doesn't need a reminder to get to work. The next verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 12 is scary alone. Verse 13 is the comforting breath, the reminder. Oh yeah, he's the one who's really at work here. I've got this salvation that he's given me and I need to figure out how to work that out in my life. This salvation shows up in my home and with my family and with my kids and with my neighbors and with my coworkers that this salvation shows up in all those places. But those are the same people who compared to my devotion to him I'm supposed to essentially hate. So that gospel is what they need from him and, and not just something from me. God is faithful to be creating new things, growing us, creating new fruit in us. So the Christian life is learning to live more and more maturely all the time, humble and sacrificial and hospitable and honest and vulnerable with, with shepherding and devotion. It's also a life knowing that he's the one working in us. So if you will, if you'll stand with me, um, I want to read a couple of passages that are key to our church as part of where the name of our church comes from. Um, but I want you to listen to these and be reminded. Listen, this is, we are being called. There's, I read something in social media this morning that said, um, it was from a pastor to pastors saying, hey, let's take the word should out of our sermons and put in the word can. Like, you, you should do the right thing versus you can do the right thing. And I thought, well, there you go once again with that Christian false dichotomy junk that we run into constantly. My, my, my thought is, yeah, we should do better. And here's the good news. In grace, we can.
I mean, until we don't. And God's grace will cover because he's the one working. I think I should be a better husband. And here's the good news. Because Christ empowers me, I can be a better husband. And then when I'm not, his grace is sufficient. Like This is, this is the gospel message. It's not one or the other. It's, it's yeah, we, we need to be living this stuff out more and more. And the good news is because of the identity Christ has given us, we have the opportunity to do so. So let me read these to you. These are from the prophet Isaiah and then um, the apostle John. From Isaiah, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, and the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. And then in a minute when we sing, if you would like to come forward and any, to, to come and pray here or in the corner with somebody, or if you say, I've, I've never put my faith in Jesus Christ, and, I, and everybody assumes I have, but I, you know what? I'm realizing right now, I really haven't. We'd love to pray with you. If, if you've gone through the welcome home process and you're ready to come join our dysfunctional family, we would, um, we'd love for you to do that as well in just a moment. So wrap up with this verse from Jesus with the woman at the well. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him that will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The very words of God.